Acts 16, verses 1 to 5 is our passage this morning. Acts 16, verses 1 to 5. And I'd like to uh, read part, read a, a kind of the context of that passage as well as 61 to 5 from Eugene Peterson's uh, paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. Um, and I, I like the way he has paraphrased this section of Scripture. I think he captures the, the uh, uh, sense of it. Starting at 1535 to get the context, Pete, uh, Paul and Barnabas stayed on in Antioch teaching and preaching the Word of God, but they weren't alone. There were a number of teachers and preachers at that time in Antioch. After a few days of this, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit all our friends in each of the towns where we preach the Word of God. Let's see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John along, the John nicknamed Mark, but Paul wouldn't have him. He wasn't about to take along a quitter who, as soon as the going got rough, had jumped ship on them in Pamphylia. Tempers flared, and they ended up going their separate ways. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and offered up, uh, and, and offered up by their friends to the grace of the master, went to Syria and Cilicia to build up muscle and sinew in those congregations. Paul came first to Derbe, then Lystra. He found a disciple there by the name of Timothy, son of a devout Jewish mother and Greek father. Friends in Lystra and Iconium all said what a fine young man he was. Paul wanted to recruit him for their mission, but first took him aside and circumcised him so he wouldn't offend the Jews who lived in those parts. They all knew that his father was Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they presented the simple guidelines the Jerusalem apostles and leaders had come up with. That turned out to be most helpful. Day after day, the congregations became stronger in faith and larger in size. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we uh, recognize that we need your spirit to teach us your word. He is the author of the word. We're asking you this morning, Lord, to help us to understand as the spirit leads us. Help us to understand what it is that you have, the message in this text that you have put there for us to learn, to know, and most importantly, to do in our lives. Lord, thank you for such a great salvation that you offer through your son Jesus and through his finished work on Calvary's cross, a salvation we do not deserve and could not earn, but that you offer us freely by putting our faith in your son Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We ask you to guide us in our study this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to go back this morning for a, for a few moments and look at the setting uh, and the context of our passage, chapter 16, verses 1 to 5. Remember, we've studied Paul's first missionary journey, and uh, we, we've studied that from Acts chapter 13, verse 4, through Acts chapter 14, verse 28, what we call Paul's first missionary journey. 
Now, I thought you'd find it interesting uh, to hear a first century description of Paul, or excuse me, a second century uh, description of Paul. A second century work entitled Acts of Paul preserves a description of the apostle which may rest on accurate tradition. So they, they believe that perhaps this description of him is accurate. You know, he wasn't uh, 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 blow dry, hair, hair blown dry, and just like all these TV preachers. Uh, Paul was uh, uh, kind of a different kind of guy, and this is a description of him. Uh, a man small of stature, with a bald head and crooked legs, in a good state of body with eyebrows meeting and nose somewhat hooked. That, that you get the picture of uh, what Paul may have looked like. Uh, full of friendliness, for now he appeared like a man, and now he had the face of an angel. So that's a second century description of Paul. Well, we looked at the first missionary journey in Acts 13, 4 through 14, 28. Then we studied the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 35. And remember, the, the uh, conclusion of the Jerusalem council was that it was not necessary for Gentiles to be circumcised. It was not necessary for Gentiles to come under the law in order to be saved. The only thing necessary for salvation is what? To believe in Jesus Christ. To put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And so the Jerusalem Council settled that. I like the way uh, Charles Erdman, a, a great teacher of the Word of God, the way he summarized the, uh, the decision of the Jerusalem Council. He said the decision includes three points. One, liberty. The law of Moses need not be kept, and they could not uh, gain salvation by their own good works. So the salvation by grace through uh, faith was preserved. So liberty is the first word that summarizes the Jerusalem Council decision. The second word is purity. Purity. Uh, they were not giving license to live a, any kind of life that a person wanted to, uh, but rather uh, liberty, not license, liberty to live a life of holiness by faith in Jesus Christ. And then the third point was that of charity, the need to refrain from offending a brother or sister in Christ, a need to refrain from offending a brother or sister in Christ. So that was kind of the, the conclusion of the Jerusalem Council. Well, this was exciting because the church was gaining more and more Gentiles all the time, and so therefore they wanted to get this message out to the churches that had already been established, and so they sent several people from the Jerusalem church along with Paul and Barnabas to announce the decision of the Jerusalem Council. And then we come up to chapter 15, verses 36 to 30 to 40, actually, the passage that, that we looked at last week with Chris. And that's where Paul and Barnabas, Paul especially, had a desire to revisit the churches 
that had been established on the first missionary journey. He was anxious to go back to the churches, anxious to go back to them and explain to them the decision of the Jerusalem Council, which they would find freeing in their lives. And so he had that desire and to see how they're doing and to, to see how they're growing. Uh, he had the desire to strengthen them. By the way, that's a key word in this section, and I want you to remember that. A key word in this section is strengthening. Strengthening. Strengthening the churches. Over and over and over again, you're going to read that they strengthen the churches. We're going to see it a couple of times in our passage this morning that they strengthen the churches. And they were, they were concerned about, I, I like the way Peterson paraphrased it, they were concerned about building the sinew and the muscle because that's what the word in Greek strengthened means. It means to build muscle, to build muscle. They wanted to build the muscle of these churches so that they would be able to stand uh, what the world would bring to them. And so Paul, and Bar uh, Paul especially wants to go back and visit the churches. Now, I find something interesting about that. Paul's plan was to revisit the churches that were established on the first missionary journey. God had a different plan. Isn't that the way it always is? We have one plan and God has a different plan. And, uh, you know, part of what we do in our daily lives as Christians is to try to see what is God's plan for me? What is it that God wants for me? What is it that God wants me to do in my life? Well, Paul's plan was to revisit the churches. It's going to be interesting as we go through this second missionary journey how God changed that plan because God had a different plan. So Paul's plan was to visit the churches established on the first missionary journey. God's plan was to greatly expand the church and in fact, the church was expanded into Europe. And uh, it set the course of the, of the West, so to speak. Uh, I like what one writer said. When we rely on organization, we get what organization can do. When we rely upon education, we get what education can do. When we rely on eloquence, we get what eloquence can do. But when we rely on the Holy Spirit, we get what God can do. So what are we relying on in our lives? What are we relying on in our lives? When we rely upon the Holy Spirit, we get what God can do. So they had this desire to visit the churches. You know from our study last week uh, that Chris talked, taught to us that the, uh, there arose a problem. Mark was the problem. John Mark. Barnabas wanted to take him along, and Paul said no. He abandoned us on the first journey, and it led to a split between them. The Daily Walk Bible, interestingly, says that reconciliation for Paul and Barnabas meant agreeing to disagree. Reconciliation for Paul and Barnabas meant agreeing to disagree. But to do it in love, and as, as Chris taught us last week, to do it in humility. And so, um, so they, they split up. 
And that brings us to the end of chapter 15. They had such a sharp disagreement, verse 39, that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of God. That's interesting. Barnabas takes John Mark and he goes actually back the same route that they had taken on the first missionary journey. He goes to the sea, he goes to the island of Cyprus. What, what do you know about the island of Cyprus and Barnabas? Anybody remember? It was his home. It was his home. He's from Cyprus, so it isn't strange that he would take John Mark, who is his cousin, and they would head to Cyprus. And it's said that from Cyprus, the uh, North Africa was reached. And so Barnabas goes that way. Well, that automatically precluded Paul from going that way. They, they had this sharp disagreement. I mean, it was a serious thing. And they agreed to disagree. And so therefore, when Barnabas goes the way they had gone the first missionary journey, Paul has to take a different way. And so we read in chapter, the last uh, verse 41 of chapter 15, he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul, instead of going south to the sea, to his, the seaport and across to the island of Cyprus, Paul goes on around by land, north and west. And if you have your, if you use a, a paper Bible, you probably have maps in the back and you could look and look at Paul's second missionary journey and you would see Paul goes north and then west to go back to the churches by a different route to go back to the original churches that they established on the first missionary journey. Now, it's been around, somewhere around two and five years since they went on that first missionary journey. So it's been a couple of years since they had gone on the first missionary journey. On this particular journey, they would travel, this second missionary journey, they would travel about 3,000 miles. It was a long journey that they went on in this second missionary journey. God prevented them from going in any direction. We're going to see next week from chapter 16, verses 6 to 10, we're going to see that God prevented them from going any other direction but west into Eastern Europe. So that's the second missionary journey. That's the background. Notice that they, uh, according to uh, verse 40, they, Paul chose Silas and he left commended by the brothers to the grace of God. Why does it say that? Why does it say that Paul and Silas were commended, but the others, it doesn't mention that the church commended Barnabas and Mark? Why is that? Well, I think it's, it's uh, simple. It's simply this that Paul's mission was the authorized mission of the church. It's not that Barnabas's wasn't important. It's not that Barnabas's wasn't a representative of the church, but it wasn't the authorized missionary journey that the church was sending out. Paul's, Paul and Silas, that was the authorized one. Well, we read in chapter 16, verse 1, 
He came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived. Now, you'll remember some interesting thing ha things happened, especially at Lystra. Back in chapter 14, and if you turn back, I want to remind you what happened to Paul at Lystra on the first missionary journey. Remember, <clears throat> in Lystra, where I'm looking at chapter 14 and verse 8, there sat a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. Well, that healing caused the people to decide that Paul and Barnabas were gods come into them in human form. And they tried to worship them as gods. And Paul and Barnabas stopped them. Paul and Barnabas said, no, we're only men like you. They tried to direct them to God. But verse 18 tells us that even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. Now this is all happening in Lystra. They came from Antium and Iconium, Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. Now that's the place that we're talking about. They are visiting once again. Now I find this a, a unbelievable thought Paul is returning to the very city they had tried to murder him in Paul is returning several years later to the very city they had tried to murder him in can you imagine the kind of courage that took the kind of courage it took to go back the kind of trust in the Lord the kind of uh, belief that the Holy Spirit was leading them and guiding them and directing them and it gave Paul the courage to go back to Lystra. Well, what we find out is in Lystra, there is a disciple named Timothy. Now, we're introduced at this point to Timothy, uh, who will become a, a major player, so to speak, in, uh, as Paul's assistant. He would be used in the church at Ephesus. He was praised by Paul to the church at Philippi. And he, uh, two of the books of the New Testament were written to Timothy by Paul when he was pastor of the Ephesian church. And uh, it was uh, here that we're introduced to, to uh, Timothy. Now, I forgot to mention to you, back in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 is the last time Peter is mentioned in the book of Acts. Peter is not mentioned again in the book of Acts after Acts 15. And interestingly also, uh, after Acts 15, we don't see a mention anymore of Barnabas or Mark. Now, obviously they're mentioned other places in the New Testament, but Barnabas and Mark are never mentioned again in the book of Acts, as is Peter, who is never mentioned again in the book of Acts after chapter 15. So, they come to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. 
The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. So here we're introduced to Timothy. We find out that he has a, a, not just a good reputation, but a great reputation among the believers. He's no doubt in his early 20s at this time. He is well respected by the people around them. And Timothy's name, by the way, uh, by the way means God honorer. God honorer. And when you, and we're going to look at his life in just a moment and, and learn some things about him. When you learn about this young man, that was the right name for him. That was the right name for him. He was a God honorer. He was one who honored God. Now, apparently, and I, I want to I share six things with you this morning about Timothy Six things about Timothy, and through Timothy, we're going to see what is it that God looks for in somebody he wants to use. And we'll see that as we see Paul seeking to bring Timothy into the missionary team. Uh, the first thing we want to see is that he was apparently converted on the first missionary journey. He was apparently converted on the first missionary journey of Paul's. Perhaps it is thought that he actually saw Paul when he was stoned at Lystra. And it's thought through that that Timothy came to faith. Now, we're going to see in a moment that Timothy was prepared for that. Timothy was prepared for that decision in his life because his mother and his grandmother were Jewesses, and they introduced Timothy to the Scripture. They introduced Timothy to the Word of God when he was just a little guy. When he was just a young child, they introduced Timothy to the Word of God. But it is believed that Timothy came to faith in Jesus Christ when he encountered Paul, who was willing to give his life for the sake of Jesus Christ. And that he observed the stoning of Paul in Lystra. Now, we believe this for a couple of reasons. Uh, and you can turn here if you want, or you don't have to, but you can write it down for your own study. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10 we read this. Paul, writing to Timothy, says this, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and where? Lystra. Lystra. The persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul says to Timothy, you know all about my life and you all know all about the persecutions I, adore, I endured and he specifically points out Lystra, Timothy's hometown. That's one of the reasons that many believe that Timothy came to faith through Paul's original visit to the city of Lystra where he was left for dead after being stoned because of his testimony for Jesus Christ. 
Also, you can write these down for your study. We're not going to turn here. But 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17, Paul calls Timothy my beloved son or my son whom I love. Many believe that he is referring to him as his son because he was his spiritual son. He was his son in the faith. Also in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 2, Paul calls him my true son in the faith. My true son in the faith. So while... Timothy had the privilege of being brought up by two women who knew the Word of God and who taught him the Word of God at a very young age. He had that privilege and that background, and we're going to look more uh, at that in just a moment. We believe that he came to faith through Paul's persecution at Lystra the first time Paul was there. And interestingly, now Paul returns to Lystra, and he wants to add Timothy to the missionary team. He wants to add Timothy to the missionary team. Well, the first thing we see is that, Paul, that uh, Timothy was apparently converted on the first missionary journey. The second thing we want to see is what I've mentioned a couple of times so far, is that he comes from a godly heritage. He comes from a godly heritage. Uh, again, in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, we read this. I have been reminded, Paul writes to Timothy, of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Timothy comes from a godly heritage. A godly heritage. That's 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. Paul writes this. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are, I find that an interesting phrase. From infancy you have known the holy scriptures. Uh, you know, when uh, Kathy was pregnant with Tim and Andy, she would talk to them while she was in her womb. And uh, she would read scripture to them. She'd play music for them. And I'm, I'm, when I read these words, uh, how from infancy you've known the Holy Scripture, I wonder, is that what Timothy's mother and grandmother did for him? That even in the womb they read scripture to him so that he had, was introduced to the scripture from infancy, infancy and how from infancy, Paul writes, you've known the Holy Scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then Paul follows that with that very familiar verse for all of us. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Timothy comes from a godly heritage from a godly heritage and uh, there's a there's a uh, something here that I think is so important and I want to see the influence that parents have upon children the influence particularly I think you moms have upon your children uh, just as Timothy was influenced by his mother and his grandmother uh, they influenced him by teaching him the word of God. They influenced him toward God. 
he may have come to faith through Paul, but they set the stage for that. They, they did the groundwork. They laid the foundation for Timothy. And I, I think it's... <clears throat> we have a tendency to overlook today the power of moms. I think we have a tendency to, to overlook the power of motherhood. One, and and not, not to let you dads out, okay? We have a place too. But the power of, of moms in their children's lives especially when they're infants. In the uh, book 365 Life Lessons from Bible Personalities, the writer says this, As parents, we have no idea of the amount of influence we have in shaping our children's spiritual destinies, family prayer times, spontaneous <coughs> conversations about God during life's everyday moments, and reading our children Bible stories contribute to a spiritual foundation that can withstand the storms of life. And then the writer asked this question of us. <clears throat> what family habit or tradition can you begin this week that will attract your children to your Christian faith? Uh, I wanted to share two quick things with you this morning. Well, it won't be very quick, to be honest with you. <laughs> uh, but I want to share two things with you. Uh, about the influence of parents and particularly the influence of mothers. Um, how many of you are familiar with, uh, with Dr. Ben Carson? Okay, most of you know Dr. Ben Carson. Uh, he is a world-renowned neurosurgeon. Uh, a world-renowned neurosurgeon. Some people know him today because uh, poor guy got into politics. <laughs> and uh, he was the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development under Trump. But he was known more for being a world-famous neurosurgeon. And he said once, uh, he was quoting Amber Abraham Lincoln, and Ben Carson said this, Abraham Lincoln once said, all that I am or ever hope to be, I owe to my mother. And that's an appropriate quote on President's Day weekend, uh, which is next week. So I'm, I've got you ahead of the game. Um, he said, Ben Carson said, I'm not sure I want to say it quite like that, but my mother, Sonia Carson, was the earliest, strongest, and most impacting force in my life. It would be impossible to tell about my accomplishments without starting with my mother's influence. What a, what a great statement. And his accomplishments are vast. I don't have time this morning. We could take up the, the whole time and, and more just talking about his accomplishments. He was a respected neurosurgeon. Uh, he said, I not only saw and felt the difference my mother made in my life, I am still living out that difference as a man. Uh, ben Carson's mom, and I'm quoting here from an article about Ben Carson and his mom, and Ben Carson's mom grew up in a foster home and received only a third grade education. She was 13 years old when she met and married Robert Carson, a 28-year-old minister. The couple moved to Detroit and had two sons together. Later, Sonia discovered that her husband was a bigamist 
with another secret family. Ben was eight years old and his brother Curtis was ten when their parents divorced. Sonia moved her sons to Boston where she lived with her sister for a short time. Later she returned to Detroit and worked as many as three jobs at a time to support herself and her boys. There were days when she felt when she left before the boys woke up and was unable to return home until late that night when Ben was in the fifth grade and came home with an unsatisfactory report card. Sonia knew she needed to ask God for the wisdom she needed to help her boys. Sonia believed in the power of God and knew that education was the road to success for her sons. Ben Carson was receiving an award when he quoted these words his mom often said to him, Benny, if you can read, honey, you can learn just about anything you want to know. Sonia chose to limit her son's television viewing to two programs a week and took them to the public library. That choice changed their lives. Each week, the boys were required to check out and read two library books. Sonia required her boys to write a book report on one of those books each week, and she would use a highlighter pen to grade those reports. Later, both boys realized that their mom had not read those reports she had graded. Sonia was not able to read. Ben Carson said it only took about one month before he was rushing home from school to read his latest book. His mom was right. Reading did change his life, but so did his faith in God. When Ben was 14, he struggled with excessive anger issues and almost took the life of another boy. Carson said he prayed for God's help and picked up a Bible which opened to the book of Proverbs and verses about anger. He believes God took away his temper and gave him the ability to become a surgeon. Dr. Carson still reads from Proverbs every day. Ben Carson excelled in high school and went on to attend college at Yale University. He was accepted into the University of Michigan School of Medicine and did his residency at Johns Hopkins, and that hospital would become his home for most of his career as a pediatric neurosurgeon. Sonia Carson prayed for wisdom. Ben Carson sought God's wisdom, and God responded by granting their prayers. Summarizing the lessons he had learned from his mom, Dr. Carson said this, through hard work, perseverance, and a faith in God, you can live your dreams. What a difference that lady made in the lives of her son, of her sons. What a difference Timothy's mother and grandmother made in his life. I want to share one other. This is not about uh, necessarily about a mom, but about uh, uh, two parents. I was listening to the radio the other day. I, I like to listen once in a while. If I'm in my car, uh, I don't usually listen to radio any other time. But there's a radio station that most of you probably don't know about. It's in Del Rio. It's a Christian radio station. It's not the one you're thinking of. And it's not uh, the... Uh, uh, at any rate, it's, it's uh, K-D-E-R. It's part of the K-H-C-B network out of Houston. And they have a repeater uh, here in the Del Rio area. 
And I usually like to listen to them because they have great teaching, and that's the emphasis of the, of the station is uh, music and teaching. And the other day I was listening to a program entitled uh, Haven Today. Haven Today. And the host of the show said, I want to introduce our guest speaker today. She's the 12-year-old daughter of our executive producer. And you know, a 12-year-old daughter, I guess I'll change channels. Uh, but I listened. And uh, he introduced her, 12 years old. She sounded a lot younger, but she was 12 years old. And her dad was interviewing her about Psalm 46 and what it meant to her. And I was reduced to tears because I thought, my goodness, I've been preaching for 40 years and I can't do the job that that little girl just did on Psalm 46. And she talked about how it brought encouragement to her. By the way, the first verse of Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength. And ever present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. And her dad said to her, how does that bring you encouragement? And this little 12-year-old said, he's our refuge and our strength and he's always near you and he's always close to you. No matter what, he said, I will never leave you. 12 years old. Her dad said, how can people, what can people take from that passage? And she said, they can read it and always know that he is near you and will never leave you. I can only imagine what her mom and dad would do with her in her life that allowed her to know the scripture so well. But it didn't stop there. He said to his daughter, you've used the scripture many times in other people's lives, haven't you? And she said, yes. She said there was a lady in their church named Maggie who had cancer. And this little girl would repeatedly send her cards with Psalm 46. And Maggie told her how much those cards meant to her as she went through cancer treatment. Moms, you have a tremendous influence upon your kids. I, I wish we had time. I bet you if I gave you an opportunity right now, you could share some stories about your kids like that, right? How many of you could share things that your kids have done? I wish we had time. The influence of a mom, the influence of a dad. It's just amazing. By the way, you can hear that if you, you want to. Let me see if I can find it here. You go to uh, haventoday.org and uh, click on their programming guide and, and click on 
uh, yes, the Yes in Christ series. And uh, you'll find it on February 9th, about the middle of the show, uh, about the middle of the, of the cast, the podcast. Um, Mom and Dad, <laughs> you have no idea about how much you can influence your children and what they can do for Jesus Christ. And I just want to urge you, uh, look at Timothy. He comes from a godly heritage, and the influence of his mother and his grandmother made such a difference in his life. Made such a difference in his life and prepared him, I believe, for salvation. The third thing about Timothy is... He is uncircumcised. Well, you say, well, why is that important? Well, what he grew up in a divided home. He grew up in a divided home. His father was a Greek, and, and under Greek thought, his father would dominate the house according to Greek law. So therefore, apparently, his father prevented him, even though his mother was Jewish, prevented him uh, from doing what the law required his mother to do, which was to have him circumcised. And apparently his father prevented that from happening. We think that by the time we are in Acts 16, that Timothy's father had passed away. He was now dead. Uh, his mother was a Jewess, uh, brought, and he was brought up in his mother's faith. And so it mentions the divided home he was in, what an encouragement, again, for those who uh, are in a home where uh, maybe the mother is a believer, but the father isn't, or the father is a believer, but the mother isn't. Um, Timothy grew up in a divided home. One writer said, it really is difficult for those who have to bring up children in a home where only one spouse is a believer, but Timothy serves as a beacon of hope Despite difficulties, the sincere faith of his believing mother was shared effectively with her son. God can and will work in the children of divided homes. If you're in a situation where your spouse is not a believer in Jesus Christ, do not despair. Do not despair. That was the situation of Timothy and he was used mightily of God. I don't have time to turn here, but write down 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 to 16. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 to 16. That's the passage of Scripture where Paul deals with those who are, uh, who are unequally yoked together. And what, what happened, uh, what Paul is dealing with there is not people who uh, uh, an unbeliever married a believer but he's dealing there with couples who married before one of them came to know Christ. So therefore, you have a man and a woman, both unbelievers, and they marry. And what happened is one of them, either the husband or wife, becomes a believer. And so they wrote to Paul from Corinth, and they said, what are we supposed to do about that? Are we supposed to get rid of our unbelieving spouse if we're in that situation? And Paul's answer was no. If your unbelieving wife wants to stay, let her stay. If your unbelieving husband wants to stay, let him stay. Because it's better for you to be in that marriage 
even though the, your partner is not a believer, it's better because therefore your children are sanctified. That means set apart. You have an opportunity to reach your children. And so Paul says, no, you stay in that marriage. I just want to encourage, uh, encourage you, if you find yourself in that situation, that God can do marvelous things. God can do marvelous things. Well, Timothy had genuine concern for others. That was the fourth thing. So we find out he's uh, apparently con converted on the first missionary journey. He comes from a godly heritage. He is uncircumcised. And number four, he had genuine concern for others. I, the way I like to say it is that he was other-centered, not self-centered. He was others-centered, not self-centered. Paul said this about him in the book of Philippians. Paul said in chapter 2, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I may also be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For every now, now, Paul was surrounded by some really great Christian people, right? And yet here he's saying about Timothy that he exceeds all of them because the one identifying feature of Timothy's life is he put others ahead of himself because he followed Jesus. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. He was other-centered, not self-centered. Um, in the, the Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren, and I'll just share one or two more thoughts, and we've got to stop there. We won't get through all six things about Timothy. But uh, in the Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren, he has a section that's called How to Think Like a World-Class Christian. And he says this, shift from self-centered thinking to other-centered thinking. He says, of course, this is a difficult mental shift because we're naturally self-absorbed and almost all advertising encourages us to think of our, only of ourselves. The only way we can make this paradigm switch is by moment-by-moment moment dependence on, upon God. Fortunately, He doesn't leave us to struggle on our own. God has given us His Spirit. That's why we don't think the same way that the people of the world think. Begin asking the Holy Spirit to help you to think of the spiritual need of unbelievers whenever you talk to them. With practice, you can develop the habit of praying silent breath prayers for those you encounter. Say, Father, help me to understand what is keeping this person from knowing you. And one last thing I'll say about that. I think that part of being other-centered is to listen to other people. Uh, we, we, we aren't, many of us aren't good listeners, but to listen to other people. Uh, I like what, uh, what uh, uh, one writer said. 
he was quoting another writer who said, a gossip is one who talks to you about other people, a bore is one who talks to you about himself, and a brilliant conversationalist is one who talks to you about yourself. So I, I thought that was a great statement. And last but not least, I ran across this description of uh, President Franklin uh, D. Roosevelt, and it is said about him that he often endured long receiving lines at the White House. As the story is told, he complained that no one paid attention to what was being said. No one was listening, even to him, when they're going through, going through the rece receiving line. So he decided to experiment at a reception. To everyone who passed down the line and shook his hand, he said, I murdered my, I murdered my grandmother this morning. <laughs> The guest responded with phrases like, marvelous, keep up the good work. God bless you, sir. It wasn't until the end of the line, greeting the ambassador from Bolivia, that his words were actually heard. Nonplus, the ambassador whispered, I'm sure she had it coming. <laughs> uh, Timothy's such an interesting character. I love to study him apparently converted on Paul's first missionary journey, comes from a godly heritage, uncircumcised. Paul has to do something about that. We'll see next week what that is. And he had genuine concern for others. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this description of this servant of yours. Surely, Lord, he wasn't perfect. None of us are, except our Savior. But Lord, there's so much to emulate in his life. So much to emulate about his mother and grandmother. I thank you for the parents of our church. I pray that you'd bless them in their ministry to their children. Help them to have stamina because it really takes that. Help them to have encouragement. And Lord, help us to be other-centered. In Jesus' name.